Our next guest uncovered a scam so unbelievable and insidious it slipped under the radar for nearly a decade. At the heart of it, a charming young Christian, Amanda C. Riley, started a blog when she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was 2012, just as blogging was really taking off on the internet, and the tragic story of the young mum of two dying from cancer soon captured the hearts of her church community. And then, America. As hashtag Team Amanda went viral, the money for treatment came pouring in hundreds and thousands of dollars. That was until investigative producer Nancy Muscatello received an anonymous tip and decided to take a closer look. The unravelling that followed has since been turned into a hit podcast that spent several weeks at the top of the charts last year, Scamander. Nancy, the investigative producer behind the series, has spent the better part of three decades researching, investigating and prepping true crime stories. I asked her what she thought this con in particular, or why this con in particular, had gripped so many people. That's a good question because um, on the surface, I think, unfortunately, it's it's the type of con that you kind of hear about a lot locally where people live. Like you may hear someone posted a GoFundMe and, um, you know, someone locally confronted them and they kind of scurry away and, and don't say anything. And I think with with this um, the depth that she went to pull off the scam and the people she not just hurt but destroyed in the process, I think, is what made make this one a little more um, like it kind of stands out from others, I think. It's also who she was, right? And just explain who Amanda Riley was before all this. An upstanding citizen by all the usual measures, right, in her community. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. I mean, she... She was a you know a pillar in her church. She was um, a young mom of two. She was very involved with the um, different groups within her church, uh, at the schools, parents. You know any anything she could get involved, and in. she was very involved in the community and with with um, you know school and church. So this begins in 2012 when she starts blogging, and it was still early days for that sort of social media. Actually, what did it look like? What was she posting? So when she started the blog, it seemed she had, she had a, she had a, the first blog she had was more of a family type of blog, which was more about like, you know, what the kids are up to or not, you know, what the kids are up to or what her and her husband are up to and the stepdaughter. And there was a little bit of a, um, you know, like anyone would updating with school pictures and that type of thing. And then when she started blogging about the medical stuff she was going through and kind of started this separate blog, it was very what you would expect, very, this is what I'm going through. I want to update everybody all at once, um, thanking them for gifts or food or anything that somebody may have dropped off or kind gesture that they made. You know, it was that type of beginning. Lymphoma Can Suck It was the name of the second blog. When, yes. when did we get into starting to take money and then starting to take extraordinary amounts of money? When did that turn happen? That turn happened probably, I would say the groundwork started being, you know, started being laid uh, in about a year or so into it. Um, there were little hints of things like thanking someone for, oh, for letting us stay at their vacation home or letting us, getting us, you know, tickets for this or go allowing us to, to go see this concert. So there were thanks for items she was already receiving, but not um, cash. Let's, let's put it as simple as that. And then... Um, I would say uh, right about a year into it, it was, oh, 
now I need this because I need to hold my space in the trial or I need to secure tickets and medicine and, and certain things. So it was a, a very it was a slow rollout at that point. As we mentioned, she was um, the principal of a Christian school. And also we're very familiar with the U.S. megachurches. We have very smaller scale megachurches in New Zealand, obviously a smaller population. But your megachurches are quite something else. And they hold big and very emotional events. Was this another factor in really ramping this up? Oh, absolutely. So she, at the time when she was, and I use this obviously, diagnosed um, with claiming she had cancer, she was not a principal then. She was um, working in a an office. Um, she was she was not teaching. She was not doing anything of that sort at the time. Um, that kind of evolved over over time. I would I think I believe it was after she was diagnosed. It was right around that that first year, like 2013 to 14 is when she joined the church. Um, and she learned of the church by a, a, one of her best friends that was quite active in the church. So um, I think she went, you know, to some I don't know, Sunday service or they had this um, they had a, a young adult meetings that were Tuesday nights. And that's what she was was most active in. It was for a certain age group. Um, and she participated in, in that weekly. And then all the things that they offered besides that, they had, you know, women, women's groups and anything that was the young adult is where she really shined. At times she would blog she was near death, right? And then there would seem to be almost miraculous recoveries. Was she taking her followers on quite the journey and did that keep them? Oh, yeah. You know, the community of that church was behind her. They were extremely supportive and constant prayer vigils and and support for her and really, you know, feeling like what they were participating in was helping to heal her. Um, She would reference that a lot. So she really uh, drew on that connection she had with fellow parishioners and friends and and that community. Um, and, And she tended to post and relate back to the church. So she would use um, things that were discussed in the, in the weekly sermons and then it would, how it applied to her and her care or her and her miracles um, and kind of feed back into it. If that makes sense, like she definitely pulled from what was being talked about uh, in the sermons and, and then miraculously that's what was happening in her life. And she knew how to manipulate that. When did you enter the story and how? So I was tipped to her behavior and, and her situation in June of 2015. So she was already two and a half years into her blogging. And at that point, you know, when I when I decided to take it on and, and really look into it, I had all those past blogs to basically fact check and go through. And so that's when I really started taking a close look because it wasn't it wasn't as obvious like now it's easy to look back and go well yeah that's obviously not how these things work but when you're first looking at something like this and you see such um such a large community involved and so many people around uh it's it's not as clear if that makes sense it's it's a little trickier to you're almost not believing what you know and then what you're seeing like they're, they're just not adding up it took me a few months to really nail down the the information that helped me know okay this this she is not being truthful this is this is all bogus basically 
It was an anonymous tip. Have you ever found out who tipped you? Yes. Oh, absolutely. You know, I used the term anonymous because they wanted to remain anonymous. They didn't want to have to deal with any potential fallout or, you know, while we I was looking into it, they just wanted to be left out of the conversation, which was completely understandable. But it was someone came in anonymous and then over time uh, there was a trust built that um, we could communicate. And the might be good reason for that anonymity because what happened and how did Amanda Riley react when you started investigating? Absolutely. I could see why, you know, someone wouldn't want to be in, in the crosshairs because yeah, she was very vindictive and very brazen in, in what she was was up to. And at that point I think you're in so deep as someone, you know, perpetrating a con that um she didn't look to go go away gracefully or or in a manner, you know, she would go into a, a self, you know, a remission. And at any of those points, when she knew I was around or others were looking into it um, after law enforcement got involved, like there was things she could have done to lessen the severity of, of what ultimately ended up happening. Well, she was prosecuted, and this was a first of its yeah. kind, I understand. Yes. And just explain a little bit more about um, the IRS. They effectively found this to be... A fraud, uh, the fraudulent taking of money because of a fraudulent claim of cancer. Does that oversimplify it? No, no, it, it, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I think what's important also for people to know, you know, since the podcast came out, gotten a lot of questions like, you know, well, why didn't they charge with this and charge with that and, move, you know, move quickly and basically stop it sooner? And I, I think what a lot of people may not understand is that when it's a federal investigation, um, as, as this was for wire fraud. It takes them, well, it took years, right? They subpoena, they do their investigation with everything, every medical record, every, you know, there's there's search warrants all along the way. They had, a, they had a grand jury over this. They had to be sure, obviously, that there was no cancer, never was any cancer, you know, in order to move forward. The people that were brought in for the grand jury and people waiting for something to happen watched her continue to ask for money and do things while she was being investigated quietly and behind the scenes. The trial also reveals how far she would go to keep up this farce, including shaving her head to make it look like she'd been in treatment. And, mm -hmm. you know, for the many victims, even for you, Nancy, because I know that I understand there's a family connection for you, right, um, with, with this terrible terrible illness you know what 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 were people's responses when they saw what she was prepared to do to deceive oh i mean i think everyone goes through this this outrage first and then there's you know those that maybe donated or believed have this tremendous amount of guilt that they didn't figure it out sooner there's a real mix of emotions for a lot of the different victims i mean for me um you know, it, it's my job. I work in, in true crime. And so I, I work with a ton of different types of stories, you know, uh, over the years. And this one was unique for me, at least, you know, losing my sister. She was quite young with young children when she passed from cancer. You know, you get outraged. It, it was a very um, feeling of unfairness that my, my sister went through something so horrific. And yet here's someone perfectly healthy, you know, choosing to have cancer, the best way to describe it, which is just very unsettling for, for many people that have had family members, if not themselves, go through through cancer treatment and and what that's like. There's such a range of emotions. And and also for me working on it, I, 
first and foremost, I was really attached to um, Jessa and her mother once I was able to speak to them and get to know them and know what Alita was genuinely like. She was not like she was being portrayed in, in the in the court papers for their custody issues. And just knowing that, you know, they told a child, Jessa, that on a regular basis that the stepmom is dying and that she needs to help with the brother. I mean, it was just that daily it's child abuse. That was the biggest driving force. It wasn't about the story or getting getting it out there. It was more about A, getting Alita to have some type of custody of her daughter again and eyes on what Amanda and her husband were up to. It was first and foremost. Jessa was Amanda's stepdaughter uh, to whom she kept up this. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, the, Jessa the, the, was the, the To whom she kept up this lie, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she pleaded guilty in the end to the wire fraud. Where, where is she now, and has any of that money been paid back, Nancy? She's in federal prison in Texas, uh, which is proximity to where they're living. They moved to Texas at, uh, after she was indicted, um, so she's in a facility, a federal women's facility, a few hours from where they were living. For money wise, I don't know. Um, that's that's a question that all goes through the uh, vic- victim advocacy funds that uh, they collect and then distribute so i'm not i'm not sure how that's done and i don't know while she's in prison there's a requirement of so much a month i believe that she it was in the plea deal of something like $25 a month that she would be responsible for to start and then once she's out it will follow her so she's required to maintain work and required there's certain uh, parole things that that she'll have to do and then any monies would be um, sent into a fund, and I'm not sure how they get distributed from there. Our guest is Nancy Muscatello. She's an investigative producer behind the top-rating podcast Scamander. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. You mentioned you've worked in true crime for many years. Hard copy, I remember that, on our TV screens uh, many, <laughs> many years ago. Yes. One of the more interesting uh, cases that you've worked on also the story also gripped the nation and also made news here down under. Uh, and uh, that was the kidnapping of Elizabeth Smart. Can you remind listeners of her story and then tell us more about the work, the series you produced about her story, Nancy? Yeah, so Elizabeth was um, 14 years old at the time when a uh, person broke into the family home, kidnapped her out of her bedroom and proceeded to live on the run with her. Um, he was a religious zealot and obviously a rapist. Oh, you know, he was a horrible person. And so he, he and his wife at the time kept her captive for seven months and uh, until someone recognized her out and about and they were able to rescue Elizabeth. And so what was Finding Justice, the series that you worked on? So working with Elizabeth on that, they were survivor-based stories. We went back um, and, and found cases that were, let's say, from didn't have to be current stories, but anything that was survivor-based that Elizabeth felt an attachment to or felt like she wanted to tell that story of what it's like to live through something like that. And then positive ways of, of helping that person, whether it be through certain different types of um, therapy. I know like for Elizabeth, she talks about a great deal that her solace was found with working with horses. Uh, so, you know, there's the different folks that we interviewed or, or spent time with. She would help them kind of figure out what it is that they 
needed for them to feel whole, whole again or, or to start healing again and how to get through something like that. It is quite remarkable, isn't it? Who, um, oh my gosh, yeah. Working with Elizabeth for that time was just, um, it, this is very expi- inspiring. She's she's a, just a wonderful woman and just extremely, uh, I say, well, you know, for what she's been through, the, the amount that she is compelled to give back and to help others is just remarkable. It's It's really, really inspiring. Did she explain to you how she was able to be even remotely okay after what happened? How does she explain that? You know, she she does a lot of talks, and the first time I was on the road with her and we um, we were covering the case, uh, I don't know if here in the States there was a young girl that was abducted um, out of her home. Her, her parents were murdered, and, and this the man took the young girl and held her captive for four or five months until she escaped, and um, her name was Jamie Kloss. So the, the sheriff from the, the town that this happened in uh, had Elizabeth come and speak because the town, it was, it was interesting. They here she was home safe and the town, they almost didn't know how to move forward. Um, do we say hello when we see her? Do we approach her? Do we give her space? Like how do, how does a community help? Um, and Elizabeth came and spoke to the town and, and met privately with Jamie and just kind of spoke about, it. you know, it's okay. Follow her cues. And how does a town you know, move forward and heal from something like that. And um, she just really has a way with explaining what it's like to go through that and what 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 someone like Jamie may be experiencing and how as a community, you can still be there for them. And they they know that, you know, to follow these social cues of what Jamie wanted to go back to school right away. And Elizabeth could relate to that because because that's how she was. You know, she was like, I told my parents, I'm going back to school. And Everyone was like, wait, what? No, you know, so she she said, you know, you have to let that let the person heal in the best way they know how to. And and it may not be what you think they're going to do or should do, but to to, you know, honor what they want to do. It, it was really eye opening to be around someone like that that could just be so transparent. She starts her talks with such openness about what happened to her and she doesn't hold back. I encourage anyone that can listen or follow when she when she does stuff. She's it's just very truly inspirational but also very um just very authentic open about authentic. what she yeah. went through. Yeah. yeah, really authentic. You've been doing this for 30 years now, hard copy. I think I think your love affair with true crime began when you picked up a newsroom phone <laughs> and Charles Manson was on the other end, right? Yes. Calling from prison <laughs> to talk to your boss uh, as as some Yeah personalities are want to do and 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 this is the thing over those decades what will you get involved in and what won't you get involved in and at what point is true crime and our obsession with it exploitative and at what point is it really um, important fundamental to to journalism where are you at three decades on with that yeah you know i i definitely coming from from hard copy you know i was you know, running the news desk and covering the day-to-days, the trials. And at the time when I was there, there was a lot of big trials here in the States from the Menendez brothers and O.J. Simpson, Michael Jackson. And so L.A. on a Los Angeles on a whole was the epicenter of so much going on. A show like Hard Copy, I think 
Did you have hard we copy did. there as well? We did. And yeah, we... I don't know if it, it was probably different hosts and stuff, but yeah. for us, back in the day when when we were doing it, it was a little more um, jarring and shocking type of coverage because no one was really local news would cover a trial or cover something, but it was in little bits and pieces. And so when shows like Hard Copy were around, I think it those shows were the kind of the first of really what news has become now, right? I mean, <laughs> all all the news stations now go in depth, get go after the the big interviews with the different people involved in the case or um how we used to do it back then and now it's become more the norm. I kind of go back and forth with if that's good or or bad. <laughs> but uh I try now that the stuff that I that I work on uh the last series I did was a little change in, in what I grown up into, which is I, I like working on the the cold cases or the other uh, unsolved where um, they're not getting the attention they need or they're not they didn't have the resources way back and it's helping families and investigators that want the coverage and want to invite us in um, in hopes of now that so much time has passed people will be more for- forthcoming and and helpful. And uh, we did a, quite a bit of that on the last series I was on. And then also working with Elizabeth, which was really different for me. And it's not that I haven't done stories about survivors and stuff, but doing it with Elizabeth, it, it's just different. Uh, it's it's a better feeling. You're coming from a place where the people w- want the help and want the advice from from someone that's been through it. So you know, I, I've changed over the over the years, and it just depends on the t- different types of shows that are out there and that I, I choose to, to get involved with. Nancy Muscatello, 